0: 1 Corinthians chapter 9 is where we're going to fix our attention. Um, This is, again, a text about food being offered to idols. And as I mentioned to you on last week, if you were with us last week, um, if you weren't, that's okay. You can go back and listen to it online and catch up. But as I mentioned to you on last week, even though this is a text about food being offered to idols, Paul is really taking his time unpacking a number of different things because this text is bigger than just simply food being offered to idols. Last week, we talked about what this text was ultimately about, was Paul was making a statement, a declaration in chapter 8 that knowledge was not enough, that rights were not enough, that yes, we have freedom in Christ, but that is not enough. And that yes God has given us knowledge in his word that sets us free from bondage but even that is not enough love trumps both of those things love trumps our knowledge love trumps our freedoms and when we exercise freedoms and exercise knowledge apart from love disaster ensues does that make sense we do more to bound people or to bind people up when we, when we remove knowledge from love. We do more to bind people up when we remove freedom from love. And so Paul makes a point that, yes, I have, yes, you have rights. You can eat whatever you want to eat. But if it's causing people around you to stumble, then it's best to use love and to exercise love Over the freedom, because your brother is more important than your right to eat. In fact, your brother is more important than a lot of rights, that we feel the need and we feel the urge to exercise. Does that make sense? The world, listen, American Christianity could be turned upside down just based on us embracing that. So much, so much of our conflict, both in and out of the church boils down to we think we know too much or we're ultimately all the time wrestling for our freedoms. And we do that in and above the call to love God and love neighbor. And if we would just reverse that order and that we would put love first, we have the ability to change all sorts of things that are happening both in the church and outside of the church. Does that make sense? And so here in this text, what Paul is going to do is Paul is going to take a moment, very a very a very powerful moment for us, because he's going to put himself at the forefront as an example for us to obey and as an example for us to follow. he's going to say, "Hey, guys, look, look over at me, look at me because I am I am going to put myself on display for you to observe and for you to make a connection to see what does it look like to actually." Forsake your rights. What does it look like for you to forsake? your freedoms. What does it look like for you to value love over knowledge? That's what, that's what Paul is about to do for us in this text. That's what the whole chapter is about. And so even though Paul is talking about apostolic rights and all these different things, he has not moved away from the subject that we talked about on last week. So if you think this is a different subject, don't do that. Don't, don't move past it. It is the same exact subject. There's two questions that I want to ask this morning. Does Paul have Christian freedom? That's the first question. Does Paul have Christian freedom? Now, the second question. Does Paul use his Christian freedom? Does Paul have Christian freedom? Does Paul use it? Or better yet, what does he do with it and why does he do what he does with it? That's the second question. So the first question, does Paul have Christian freedom? Now, this is a valid question, by the way, because by now a couple of thoughts could have been running through uh, the heads of the Corinthians concerning Paul. If you don't know by now, Paul is, is not living a very luxurious life. Paul is, Paul is probably, in fact, Paul probably enjoyed more material comforts in his life before Christ than he has after his life with Christ. In this very letter for example to the Corinthians, Paul has always co- he has communicated his present circumstances, and they sound like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. These are Paul's present circumstances. Verse 11, to the present hour we hunger and we thirst and we are poorly dressed and we are buffeted and homeless and we labor working with our own hands. And when we are reviled, we bless. And when we are persecuted, we endure. And when we are slandered, we entreat. We have become and still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. This is Paul's present circumstances as he is writing to the Corinthian church so again naturally there are two questions possibly that are running through the Corinthian church concerning this man who is not doing very well on the on the outside so to speak materially and it's this Paul why do you even live like that what about all of your freedoms and your rights that you have as an apostle Why do you choose to live this way? Or maybe even there's a second question, and it's this. Paul, are you really the apostle that you say you are? Because if you're the the apostle that you say you are, certainly you wouldn't be living this bad. Or maybe you're living like this because you have no other choice, because you aren't the man that you proclaim to be. Those are two questions that are probably going through the heads of this church. And to that, Paul gives us this chapter. First, in chapter, uh, chapter 9, verse 1, we hear this. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Paul begins by asking uh, Corinthians seven questions that all are intended to be answered yes. The first, first four questions are in chapter, uh, chapter 9, verse 1 through 2, and then uh, once you get to chapter, uh, chapter 9, verse 3, he, he adds more questions. But the first question is the foundation that all the other questions are built upon, and it's this, am I free? Do I have rights? The answer is yes, of course, Paul. You have rights. You have freedom in Christ to exercise your rights as you choose. Now, of course, after his comments in chapter 8, it may be easier for the Corinthians to second guess how Paul understands that freedom. I mean, the same man that taught us that food is not unclean is now saying... I would stop eating meat altogether. Well, what's that about, Paul? I thought you said it was all clean and that it was edible and that, you know, we have freedom in Christ. The folks are, folks are hearing him make such a declaration or the folks that are hearing him make such a declaration might be inclined to ask, what led to this? What kind of freedom do you truly have, Paul? Are you really free? It sounds like you're bound. to Paul, I mean, to that, Paul would say, yes, I am free. Verse 1, but not only am I free, I am an apostle. I've witnessed the sight of the resurrected Savior with my very own eyes, and I've heard his voice with my very own ears. And if anyone in the world was able to validate that truth that I am an apostle, it's you, the Corinthian church. Why is that? Why is that? Verse 2, or verse 1, the latter half of verse 1, are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Paul is saying here, if any of you have questions about my rights as an apostle, check my resume. And on that resume, you'll see your faces, because the reason that you are in Christ is because God has used me to minister to you. And so if you need evidence of my apostle uh, apostolic work, look no further, farther than this church. This church is evidence of my apostolic work. So yes, I'm free in Christ, and yes, I have knowledge as one who's been visited by the resurrected Savior and discipled by his very spirit, and you are the evidence of the apostolic calling on my life. In other words, I unequivocally have a right to a lot of things. Yes, I have freedom. Yes, I have rights. So Paul does, in fact, have Christian freedom, which means the question then becomes what kind of freedom does he have? And if someone were to ask that, what kind of things, Paul would then turn their attention to verses 3 through 15, because in these verses, Paul gives a full defense for all of the rights that he has at, their, at his disposal as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Beginning at verse 3, look there with me. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? First, Paul points to the Corinthians in order to say, I have the same freedoms that you have. You have the right to eat and drink. I have the right to eat and drink. I've chosen not to do so. Why, Paul? He continues, though. Second, he turns his attention to the other apostles, and he says, as if, as if to say, I have the same freedoms that they have. He says, look at the brother of Jesus, James. Look at, look at Peter. They have, they have their Christian wives. So there is no prohibition to me having a wife. No, I'm not married, but I certainly could get married if I wanted to exercise that freedom. And then Paul turns his attention to the issue of compensation, and care for a preacher and pastor. As if to say, not only do I have a right to food and drink as you do, and not only do I have a right to get married like the other apostles have done, but I also have a right to receive compensation from the work of the gospel. He first appears to make the case that the other apostles are being taken care of. Look at verse six again, he says, Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? In other words, the the other apostles are not working odd jobs in order to make ends meet. They're being taken care of and they're being compensated for their gospel work. And while I'm working another job, Paul is saying, and while Barnabas is working another job in order to not burden the church, the church that we serve here in Corinth, we have a right to receive from you. Now, in order to deal with this, Paul takes several more verses. Because we know how funny people can get when preachers start talking about getting compensated. So he spends more time here. Amen? And I will try to blow through this without you thinking that I'm talking about me, because I'm not. But in order to support his position... The laborers of the gospel should be taken care of by uh, this position that the laborers of the gospel should be taken care of by those who reap the benefit of their labor in the gospel. In order to support this, Paul points to three supporting sources of evidence. The first is the everyday. The everyday. The second is the law. And then the third is Jesus. The everyday, the law, and Jesus. Jesus. First, the everyday. Paul says he begins, rather, he begins to build his case for his right to receive financial support and care by pointing to three different examples in the everyday. Verse 7, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Paul's point is that a soldier doesn't go to war on his own dime for his country. The country who reaps the benefit of his protection compensates him for that protection. He also says if a gardener never got the opportunity to eat from his own produce, we would consider that to be pretty cruel. And then he also says we would would consider it crazy and foolish if a shepherd wasn't allowed to drink from the milk produced from the sheep that he cares for. You know, I know managers at restaurants who not only pay their employees, but they give their employees a free or discounted meal every day that they're working. Why? Because in serving the restaurant, the manager has deemed it appropriate that they receive from that service. So Paul's point is that the servant of the gospel is really no different than any of these everyday examples. In fact, Paul highlights those working in the temple in verse 13 to make a religious connection for those who may be tempted to avoid those connections. You no, know, there may be somebody out there that's saying, well, I mean, yeah, Paul, that's in, you know, secular life, but, but, but it's supposed to be different when we're talking about the, you know, about matters of the faith. And then Paul goes in verse 13 and he says this, look with me. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar sharing the sacrificial offerings. Paul is more than likely pointing to the the Judaic temple customs here. He's saying, hey, this has always been the case. This is a part of our faith, that those that work and labor, even in the gospel, reap and reward from the gospel. But he also points to the law. Look at verse 8. He says, do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he, does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope sharing in the crop. Now, here's what Paul is pointing out. He's pointing out, he's not saying that God was calling us oxen in Deuteronomy chapter 25. There were real oxen that God commanded those that were using the oxen to not muzzle so that they could do what? They could eat as they tread. Does that make sense? So he's not saying that we were the oxen there. What he's probably doing is a similar thing that, God, that Jesus does um, in Matthew chapter 6 when he is encouraging us to not worry. Remember, when he encourages us to not worry in Matthew chapter six, he points to the birds. And he says, the birds, I feed and I care for them. If I feed and care for the birds, won't I feed and care for you? Then he looks to the flowers and he says, the flowers, I robe them in splendor. If I robe the flowers in splendor, won't I make sure that you're clothed? And so Paul is making a similar connection with the ox, with the oxen. He's saying, if God, that we take care of the ox when he works in the field and, and make sure that he can reap compensation from the field that he is working, then how much more so does it apply to those who labor in the fields of the gospel? Does that make sense, church? Should they not be able to be compensated from the harvest that they work and the harvest that they gather? And then he finally makes one defense for the compensation of the gospel workers and the gospel workers defense the last defense is Jesus Christ verse 14 he says in the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel Jesus says that he says Jesus when he sent the disciples out for the work of missions he 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 told them to acquire no gold or no silver or no copper for their belts and no bag for their journey or two, tun- uh, or two tunics or sandals or a staff. And then Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 10, verse 10. He says, for the laborer deserves his food. That's what Paul is pointing to when he says that Jesus said the same thing. So for everyday life, Paul makes the case. From the Old Testament, Paul makes the case. And from the New Testament, Christ, Paul makes the case. So the position has been fully defended, leaving Paul to say in verse 11 and verse 12, look there, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? So by now, if there's any uncompensated and underappreciated preachers that are watching online this morning. They're probably shouting from their seats and saying, yes and amen, brother, preach. And they would be right to do so because if they are underappreciated, if they are uncompensated, then certainly the body would do well to show them love and would do well to, to show them appreciation for pouring themselves out for the sake of their flocks. However, if we think that this is the point of Paul's defense, then we would be mistaken. This is not the point that Paul is trying to make. Paul has spent all of these verses thus far defending his right to his rights. He spent all of this time trying to make a point that the reason I'm not exercising my rights is not because I do not have rights i have them those rights have been verified by nature the everyday the soldier the gardener the shepherd those rights have been verified by the holy law in terms of deuteronomy 25 with the oxen and do not muzzle the oxen those rights have been verified by jesus himself in matthew chapter 10 when he says don't don't uh the labor is worthy of his hire i have rights and they are authorized by the gift of salvation that I have in Christ and the the appointment that I've been given by Christ to apostolic ministry. I have rights. I have plenty of rights. So why is Paul choosing not to use them? And that's the second point. Why does Paul not exercise all of his rights and all of his freedoms? We see it first show up in the latter half of verse 12. Look at verse 12 with me. Paul says, I have rights. I have rights. I have plenty of rights. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Paul's reason for not fully exercising his rights is because he does not want to put any obstacle in the way of the gospel of Jesus Christ the gospel of Jesus Christ the good news of the arrival of the savior who enters into a sinful world and lives a life for a people who could not hold to his righteous demands and dies a death to take the eternal penalty that all of those people deserved that we deserved in order to offer eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth with him for all who would turn from their life of sin and embrace him as savior and lord the God Paul says, I will not put any obstacle in the way of that gospel being delivered to those who are in need of it and to those who need to be encouraged by it. I will not put any obstacle in the way of that gospel. Now, catch this. The gospel that Paul has received freedom from is also the same gospel that he is willing to lay his freedoms down when necessary. In other words, the gospel in which we've been given freedom actually trumps the freedom that we received from it. Do you understand that? Do you understand that? It's extremely important, saints, that you get this. The gospel that you've received freedom from trumps that freedom that you've received from it. Also notice one more thing about verse 12. We endure anything, anything, rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Listen, this is how significant the delivery of the gospel is to Paul. This is how significant it is. He won't allow anything to make even the slightest obstruction from the gospel. Anything, he won't allow anything to put one obstacle in the way of the gospel. Does that make sense? You know, in other words, like he's not flipping it around like some of us think where I won't allow, you know, some rights to get in the way from messing up the big gospel picture. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, no, I won't allow any right to get in the way of any part of the gospel picture. Does that that make sense to you? One scholar writes that the primacy of the gospel trumps all other considerations when it comes to Paul's use of his rights. And then he says that a gospel Christian is not someone who merely believes the gospel, but one whose life reflects gospel priorities, end quote. Does your life reflect gospel priorities? Do you say to yourself in the midst of all of the freedom that you have, do you say to yourself in the moment when you're choosing to exercise that freedom, does this prioritize the gospel in my life? Will people see Jesus as a result of the exercise of this freedom? Will people see Jesus? Or will this just be another opportunity for me to exercise my rights? We're all about rights. We're constantly fighting for rights. Last week, MLK was a day in which rights were at tension. This week, Sanctity of Life is a day in which rights are in tension. We're constantly fighting and clawing for rights. That's the way of our culture. Here, Paul is asking another question Are you constantly fighting to ensure that the gospel is front and center? Not simply your right to do a thing, but the gospel being center. Anything that might overshadow the delivery of the gospel in Paul is cast aside for him. Even if he has to work a second job while the other apostles around him are fully compensated, Paul says, I'll do it. Why? Because the gospel's more important. Why would this be a stumbling block, by the way, in Corinth that is not for the other apostles? You ever ask that question? Why, why, is it, why is it that Paul has to wrestle with this in Corinth, but he doesn't appear to have to wrestle with this in other places. In Philippians, he even thanks them for compensating him. So what's going on here in Corinth? Well, some scholars tie it back to a system of uh, patronage in some of the ancient cities of the day. When you were, when you were um, receiving support, it was offered not only as an act of friendship, but an act of allegiance to many. One scholar notes that through this system, people of high status use their wealth not only to cater for their social and economic needs, but to form alliances and to secure power as a form of security and protection against personal and political enemies. Do you understand? In other words, the dollar was used to buy something. Then he continues, this same scholar, he continues and he says this, For Paul to accept such a gift would probably have suggested to the Corinthians and others, not only that they were friends, but also that they were Paul's patron and he their client. Such a perception would have potentially disastrous results for the ministry of the gospel. Paul would no longer be free to be all things to all people, but would be expected to be what the Corinthian patrons wished He may also have not felt free to correct them as he saw fit. Others to whom he ministered, both inside and outside the church, could well think that he represented the interests of the Corinthians who supported him rather than God's interests or their own. Does that make sense? So in other words, in this particular area of the world, the possibility of Paul being seen simply as a higher hand, someone who was bought off, is more prevalent. And so because that is more prevalent for Paul, Paul says I won't take your money. Does that make sense? Paul's point is here possibly. Possibly. This is like I said scholars have debates on this. This is the most pro- a prominent thought. But 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 possibly Paul is saying I'm not going to put any obstruction in the way of the gospel by taking compensation that may have demands attached to it. Even if the demands are small, no obstacle is worth any of my rights being exercised. Here's another point that Paul makes. Nothing is going to get in the way of my joy and reward and sharing the gospel. Verse 15, look there. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. In other words, Paul's saying, I didn't make make this defense so that you guys would get out your wallets. That's not why I made this defense. And then then he says this, for I would rather die didn't have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I will, be, I will still be entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Here's what Paul is saying. I'm not making this defense because I want something for, from you. I'm making this defense so that you understand that I could take something from you, and I'm refusing to take something from you because I would rather die than be deprived of my reward, my boast, my glory, my joy. And what is this? And what is, what is that, rather? Is that you receive the gospel, and when you receive it, you know that I wanted nothing more than you to receive it. That I wasn't here for your money. You know, you know, how some, you know how sometimes where it's like, well, I mean, yeah, he, I mean, he's just preaching because he has to preach, right? Or he's just preaching because that's just a really good side gig. Makes him some extra money, or he's just doing this to because he knows that he's gonna. You know, we're gonna elevate him because of this great word that he's given us, and we're gonna prop him up in all these great places because of this great word that he's given us. Paul says, "I have no greater joy than this, to give you the gospel, and you know, that I gave it to you for nothing." In fact, Paul says this, he says, for those of you who are thinking, well, I mean, maybe he's just giving it to us because, you know, because, you know, he, he, he want, he, he, he's supposed to do it. Paul says, listen, you're right, I have to preach the gospel. I have no choice. God has commanded me to preach the gospel. The Lord has called me, the Lord has has rocked me on the road to Damascus to preach and share the gospel. I have no choice but to preach and share the gospel. If I don't preach the gospel, I'll be judged for not preaching the gospel. So how can I get away from this? I can't even not preach the gospel. So how do you know that I'm doing it from a sincere place? He says, you know, because I'm not worried about exercising any of my rights when I do it. That's how important it is to me, that I'm willing to lay down every right in order to share it, in order to deliver it. What happens when a neighborhood, when a city, when a, when a country, when a world sees Christians dying to themselves to make the gospel known. Have you ever asked why is it that, that, that people often critique much of the American faith as being inauthentic? I mean, the easy answer is, well, because they don't believe in Jesus. And that is obviously a true answer. There's, many, there's, many, there's, many, there's, there's, there's a valid point to be made there. But have you, have you ever did some soul searching to ask, is there something that we're projecting in us that would cast doubt on the gospel? I think the truth is found in here, in this text that we're reading this morning. You see, when a church is more interested in its freedom, and its rights, and clawing for it, then the gospel becomes obstructed. Obstacles get placed in the way of the gospel. Verse 19, he says this. He says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them to the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews to those under the law I became as one under the law though not being myself under the law that I might win those under the law to those outside the law I became as one I became as one outside the law not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Listen, verse 23, I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. I desire so desperately to see people reached With the gospel, Paul says, did I lay down whatever rights necessary in order that people might receive it? You know, we often take this scripture to to just simply mean I'll contextualize. You know, I'll, I'll change my dress. I'll put on a smiley face emoticon shirt. Who does that, right? I'll, I'll, ch- I'll change my style of worship. I'll, I'll change my customs and, and, and my traditions. I'll, I'll change it up. Why? Because, because I'm becoming all things to all, all men in order that I may win some. But it's more significant than that. It's, it's deeper than that. Paul is saying not just simply that I'm just going to change up some things and loosen, you know, loosen up a little bit. No, Paul is saying I will lay down whatever right that gets in the way for the Jew to be open to and edified by the gospel. I will lay down whatever right that gets in the way for those who are outside of the law to be open to and edified by the gospel. I will lay down whatever right that is required for those that are weak to be open and edified by the gospel. I will lay it down so that people will be edified by the gospel. What does the freedom we have and enjoy in enjoying Christ compel Christians to do for Christ? It should compel us to lay whatever is required down. The freedom that we have in Christ is not to be hoarded and and just kind of held tightly in terms of, well, I got my freedom, so I can do whatever I want to do. I don't really care what you think. No, the freedom that we've been given should compel us to lay it down when necessary. So that others will experience what? Freedom. It should compel us to live in service to those around us. Why? So that they can experience freedom. The freedom that is in Christ, if it doesn't move you towards service in Christ, then you have yet to understand the one who has set us free. If your freedom in Christ doesn't move you towards sacrificing your freedoms to help those in need, then you have yet to understand the one who has set you free. If all your freedom does is force you to, or push you to fight and claw for it, claw for your rights to do whatever you want to do, say whatever you want to say, then you have yet to understand the one who set us free. Paul says, listen, verse 23, I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessing. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly I do not box as one beating the air but I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified this is another text that because we kind of snatch it out of the context that we missed we missed the depth of what's being said you know, when we hear this text, we're thinking about, okay, self-control, discipline, you know, okay, I need to stop cursing, so beat myself, you know, so I can stop cursing, or I need to stop watching ugly things on TV, so beat myself so I can stop watching ugly things on my, on my computer, or, you know, all these different things that we're pointing to in terms of self-control. That, that has merit, that has weight in this text, but that's not what this text is all about. Paul is talking about exercising the kind of discipline and the self-control and being strenuous and how he commits himself to laying down his rights. I have the rights. Sometimes I even know that I'm right. And I have the rights to exercise this knowledge of being right and yet I am. Brian, stay down, stay down, stay down. Why? Because it's more important that the gospel reach the one that I'm trying to, that that I'm that I'm speaking to or edify the one that I'm speaking to. It's more important that the gospel reach the one that I'm ministering to or edify the one that I'm ministering to. My rights aren't the most important thing. The gospel is. And so I discipline my body to ensure that my freedoms aren't the thing that people walk away with, the gospel is. Paul is fighting against his sense of entitlement. He's fighting against his sense of self-centeredness. He's fighting against his sense of selfishness. What would the world see if they saw us treating our rights this way? rather than the way that they too often see us treat them. Saints of God, when the world looks at your life, will they know you by what you are reaching for or by what you are laying down? Will they know you by what you are chasing to grab or will they know you by what you are chasing to give? Will they know you by how you sacrifice your time and your talent and your treasure? Or will they know you by the fact that you claw with everything you have to get those things back and keep those things for yourself? Will they know you by how, how hard you're willing to fight for your rights or by how hard you're willing to forsake those rights in favor of another? And I'm not just talking about material goods. Are we known for how we refuse the spotlight, about how hard we try to keep it fixed on us? Are we known by how little we want credit or by how ferociously we fight to take credit from others? Are we known by how much we work in the background or how committed we are in making sure that our name is in the foreground? When the world looks at our life, will they know us by what we reach for or by what we lay down? This is the point of Paul's message to us this morning. If they know us by what we lay down, then what they are seeing is Jesus in us. Because remember, Jesus is not known by what he was taking. Our Savior is known by what he gave. Our Savior is consistently known by what he laid down. And so when we lay down, we We illuminate Christ to the world. This is our call. But not only our call, saints, our prayer is that it should be our joy that Jesus becomes so preeminent in our lives that not only do we lay down the right, but we joyfully lay it down because we know in laying it down, the gospel is going ahead of our freedoms and our knowledge and reaching those in which we desire and pray be reached. Amen. Let's pray. God, we love you so much.